Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Section 3, Insurrection in the 2024 Election, The Argument, features an interview with Michael Paulson, a distinguished university chair and professor at University of St. Thomas School of Law, about his article, The Sweep and Force of Section 3, in which asked the question, does the 14th Amendment bar Donald Trump from the presidency? Professor Alan Rosenstein conducts the interview, as well as hosts the day-long event, Section 3, Insurrection, and the 2024 election that this interview was a part of. This event was recorded on October 30th, 2023. A video replay of the entire event is available on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Good afternoon. Welcome. Uh, Thank you all for joining us today in person and also those joining us via live stream. My name is Margarit Margaritov. I am the president of the Federalist Society here at the University of Minnesota Law School. Uh, And it is my honor to introduce our lunch speaker, Professor Michael Paulson, the Distinguished University Chair and Professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Law, and co-author of The Sweep and Force of Section 3. Uh, the conversation will be moderated by our own Professor Alan Rosenstein. I want to thank Professor Paulson for graciously accepting Professor Rosenstein's invitation as well as ours. And I also want to thank Professor Rosenstein for welcoming the Federalist Society and the, and the American Constitution Society as co-sponsors of this very timely and informative uh, conference. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on legal or policy issues. Um, without further ado, gentlemen, take it away. Thank you, Margarit. Uh, Do you mind if I start off and just saying uh, thank you to the organizers of this? Thank you to the Federalist Society. This actually originated as an invitation from the Federalist Society for me to come across town and just give an informal lunch presentation before Alan hijacked it and blew it up into a... <laughs> full-blown academic conference, but it's really an honor to be here. It's great to be back home. Uh, I taught here for 16 years. I have many great faculty friends and colleagues uh, still, and Bob Stein hired me in 1991. I taught here from 1991 to 2007, so it's great to be back, and I'm honored to do this. Uh, Thanks so much for uh, for coming. We're, We're delighted to have you. So I have a bunch of questions I want to ask you, but I want to start first with how you feel about all of this. How do I? <laughs> and and here's, here's what I mean. Here's, and I'll, I'll send you the therapy bill after the hour. Okay. Um, th- there are not many law review articles, certainly not many 126-page law review articles. Uh, there may not be any 126-page law review articles that get more than 100,000 downloads on SSRN in the first uh, six weeks, essentially, of their being released. Um, not many law review articles end up playing a major role in the national and international conversation of what may be one of the most consequential issues in the history of American democracy. Um, and I know that you are, uh, and to me, a brilliant scholar, a very humble one, and, and I know that you don't like making yourself the story. So I promise that after the next 60 seconds, I'll stop. <laughs> but what does it feel like to be in whatever way you are part of the story? It, well, it is humbling and a little bit overwhelming. I mean, when we set off to do this, it was uh, like more than a year and a half, pushing two years ago, 
when I, it was spring of 2022, and I wanted to take a look at this issue, the issues of Section 3. It had, we were not the first people to think of this. Uh, Gerard Magliocca, uh, Mark Graber had written stuff on it. Uh, a young scholar who was a recent graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Law School named Miles Lynch had written an article. And it had just been sort of a lingering issue since January 6, when people had raised the Section 3 disqualification issue. And I thought, I, I'd like to write something about this. And I wrote my young friend, the brilliant Will Bode at University of Chicago. I sent him a short email saying, I think I'm, gonna, I'm thinking of writing something short <laughs> on Section 3 and how it remains in force and it is self-executing. Do you have any thoughts on this? Have you blogged on this? You know, what have you read? What should I have read on it? And he said, well, have you read Griffin's case? And I said, yeah, I've read Griffin's case. That's the Salmon P. Chase 1869 decision first misinterpreting Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And it's just an awful opinion. So I said, yeah, I think it's just awful. I think that the answer to the Griffin case is it's just plainly wrongly decided. And Will wrote back and said, I agree, that's just plain wrong. And then I wrote, said, well, here's kind of what I'm thinking of arguing. And he said, well, have you thought about this? And I said, well, what about that? And we, we had an email exchange that went about 50 exchanges long before I said, do you want to write this together? And we started writing it slowly. We both had other ideas, articles in the hopper, and it took a long time to get developed. And really, for the longest time, we thought we were looking at something that was idiosyncratic and likely to be irrelevant to anything. I don't know, it's hard to think way back to 2022, but before the midterm elections, people kind of regarded Trump as dead in the water. He was, his poll numbers were low. Then the 2022 midterms came and all of the Trump-backed candidates were defeated and everyone was saying it's going to be DeSantis. And we were actually thinking, are we going to write a law review article that will get no attention at all because it'll be irrelevant to anything? And then he started getting indicted, and his poll numbers went up. And all of a sudden, as we're bearing down on completion of the article, with, you know, we're thinking this might actually have some effect, we finished it over the past summer, like June and July, and we were aiming for the August 1st deadlines for law reviews, when the law review editors come back from their summer jobs and start looking at manuscripts. We landed at Penn, uh, Penn Law Review. Uh, in part, we, we were wondering if anybody would accept this article at, at all, because it was so massively long, right, 126 pages. And we were toying with, should we divide it into two articles, send it to two? But we said, well, we kind of want to get the whole thing out there. Penn published it. And then a few days later, Will posted it on SSRN. The New York Times, Adam Liptek took interest, did a little interview, and then boom, it just sort of exploded into public view and got a, a lot more attention that somewhat, than somewhat introverted law professors are accustomed to. We got, we got calls from about 20 television programs, just about every MSNBC program you can think of. Uh, Chuck Todd uh, turned down George Stephanopoulos a few weeks ago. Because, because, well, in part, 
we're just academics, right? We were just looking to try and solve a series of interesting intellectual puzzles and not to be activists in the debate. We knew it might have some public affairs significance, um, but we, we've basically been keeping at arm's length to just be discussing the academic issues. So I think this is like my second public uh, event. I did something at University of Michigan. We've been confining ourselves to academic uh, fora uh, for discussing these issues. Well, we're very glad that you were willing to, uh, to come here and talk about it today. So, you know, both you and Will, I think it's safe to say, are often thought of as conservative scholars and originalist scholars. Um, and, you know, as you point out, these issues have been floating around a little bit before you and, and Will wrote this piece. And um, in addition to the sheer amount of scholarship and kind of definitiveness that your piece provides, I think it probably is also notable, right, that it came from conservative and originalist scholars, right? Um, so I'm curious, you know, what those labels mean to you in particular and how that informed how you went around thinking about this problem, especially the originalist part. Right. Um, we are originalists. Uh, there's some small differences between Will Bode's interpretive methodology and my own, but we are basically in considerable sympathy with each other's premises. But so here's what originalism means to me. Uh, I think the task of constitutional interpretation, of faithful constitutional interpretation, need is to seek to ascertain and faithfully apply the objective, original meaning of the words and phrases and structural logic of the Constitution. In other words, you're looking for the meaning of the words as they would have been understood by the people who were using them and employing them at the time of adoption. You want to take into account any specialized usages or terms of art and some background premises. Now, so if I give this a fancy academic label, it is original public meaning textualism. Because we actually focus on the meaning of the words of the text. History is useful for displaying how words are used and the meanings and usages that were current at the time, and it frames the context. But it's not, in our view, a search for the subjective intentions or expectations of particular individuals and what they said. It's looking to the meaning of the words as informed by history. And you know, our view is that once you have found the original meaning of the Constitution, then the task of constitutional interpretation is to apply it. Right? You go with the original meaning. If you are applying something other than the original meaning of the words, you're engaged in textual anachronism, right? You are reading things out of, their out of the proper sense and time in which they were used, and it leads to misfire. We are also, in, in that sense, this is a good Federalist Society position. Um, we are very much committed to not interpreting the text according to any policy preference, right? Um, I sometimes, well, I view my task when I teach constitutional law to students to get them to think with law and not think with their politics, right? Which is really hard in constitutional law. It degenerates into food fights over affirmative action, abortion, whatever the hot button issue is of the day. 
And it's really challenging to get people to think about law separately from their political preferences. I sometimes joke with my students that you shouldn't do constitutional interpretation the way my high school lab partner and I used to do chemistry experiments, which was my, my partner was a guy named Cal, who was, of course, a lawyer now back in Wausau, Wisconsin. And he would proudly announce his methodology for, uh, for doing chemistry experiments. First, draw the desired curve. Then plot some data. If time permits, do the experiment. <laughs> And that's pretty much what we did in high school. But you, we sh you should not do constitutional interpretation the way we did chemistry experiments. You shouldn't reverse engineer your interpretive approach based upon your desired results. You don't pick the results and then pick the methodology. You run an interpretive program, and you follow it where it leads you. Right. So that's probably another feature of our common interpretive methodology is what I would call formalism, where the text adopts a rule. You follow the logic of the text's rule where it leads and don't turn off just because of policy preferences. So I think the fact that we were originalists accounted for some of the attention and the media attention because these issues tend to divide along party lines, ideological lines. And our ideology was basically to try to look at the Constitution objectively and figure out the answer to a bunch of interesting puzzles. How do you do that when the topic that frames your constitutional question, because of course, your article is not just an analysis kind of in the abstract about Section 3. It is about, in large part, or at least at the end, whether or not Donald Trump can run for president in 2024. And Trump, whether one likes him or dislikes him, it's very hard to be apathetic towards him. He, he sucks all the oxygen out of any room uh, he is in. And so I, I just wonder how, and, and maybe just kind of personally, sort of how you, as you went through this process, tried to cabin this question. Because it, it does seem to me very difficult, even just subconsciously, not to think about all the practical risks, you know, whether they're risks about disenfranchisement, where there are risks about letting someone unfit for office into the country, uh, into the back of the presidency, whether it's risks of violence. I mean, one can go on and on on both sides of it. H how do you sort of hermetically seal that off? Well, I, I don't know that you can perfectly hermetically seal it off, but I, but I have 33 years of training of being a constitutional law professor, and, and my shtick, if there is one, is to basically look at texts ascertain their meaning, and follow it where it leads. And I have a couple of articles where the logic of following the text and the original meaning of the Constitution lead to fairly unconventional conclusions. So, so I, I'm kind of well rehearsed in ignoring political consequences. Um, there were at least some issues as we were working it out where I was initially inclined to think this is actually an escape hatch, right? Uh, that this is a way in which Section 3 does not disqualify Trump and others. And what I was initially looking at was, you heard some discussion this morning about the power of Congress under this last sentence to remove the disability by two-thirds vote. The 14th Amendment is ratified in 1868. 
1872, they kind of give up on Section 3 disqualifications, and they pass a general amnesty statute with some exceptions for members of the 36th and 37th Congress and people who served in certain military positions. It had become an unpopular uh, approach to disqualify the South. They were doing it case by case, individual by individual, and then finally they said, we're pretty much done with this. It coincides with the beginnings of the decline in interest in maintaining uh, reconstruction at the same time. And then in 1898, on the cusp of the Spanish-American War, they, they basically say the disqualification effectuated by Section 3 is hereby uh, relieved. We relieve everybody of the disability, right? We've put this behind us. And honestly, my first inclination was maybe these disqualification removal statutes extinguish Section 3, right? In the end, we concluded that actually is not the right analysis that the disqualification removal does not explode the first sentence of Section 3. You can only remove disqualifications that legally come into existence. You can't, by statute adopted by two-thirds, basically undo Section 3 as a whole. But you know, initially, we had questions about many of these things. We were uncertain of the answers, and it took some time to work it out. So let's get into the, the heart of, of, the, of the article, which is the argument for why uh, or you're arguing about Section 3, and obviously, again, it's a, it's a rich, complex piece, this 126-page article, though I really do recommend folks in the audience, um, you know, even if or especially if you're not a specialist, to read the piece. It's exceptionally well-written. You can just sit and read it, and it flows beautifully. Um, and we're, you, we're, we're trying to get to 105,000. Yeah. So, so please <laughs> agree. There's a special certificate that SSRN says you had 105,000. Um, so, and obviously, it's, it's hard to uh, condense that, but you know, if you can, in a few minutes, can you sort of sketch uh, out the, the main points of the argument? Okay. <clears throat> um, well, basically, the organization of the article is organized around four propositions. So, yeah, you can actually take notes and get this done. Uh, so our four propositions are this. First of all, that Section 3 is still legally operative, that it's in force, right? And... <coughs> Well, let me sketch the four of them, then I'll say about, talk for about two minutes about each of them, and then you'll see, see what's of interesting. So section three is legally operative. It remains legally in force. Our second point is that section three is self-executing, that the Constitution directly enacts a governing rule, and it requires no congressional statute in order to be effective, much like the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment. Our third set of arguments is that section three to the extent it is in conflict with prior constitutional provisions, supersedes or qualifies or modifies or satisfies those previous constitutional provisions. Amendments amend things, and to the extent it changes constitutional law, it changes constitutional law. Um, you can harmonize Section 3 with many provisions of existing constitutional law, but to the extent it meaningfully changes something, Section 3 trumps so to speak, <clears throat> what had gone before. We all see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> and then our fourth argument um, is that Section 3 it, it goes to the substance of Section 3, that it did not enacts a quite dramatic sweeping disqualification 
um, for the officers and officers to whom it applies. And what we, we basically do a 50-page clinic on originalism, an original interpretive method, analyzing, looking for historical and textual evidence of what is the meaning of the term insurrection, rebellion, what it means to engage in insurrection or rebellion, what it meant and how they understood it at the time they were adopting it, to give aid or comfort to enemies of the United States, and how that related to the prohibition and insurrection. So that, that's basically the four arguments, right? That, it, uh, that Section 3 remains legally in force, that it's self-executing, that it supersedes prior law, and it's pretty darn broad. And it's only at the tail end of the pretty darn broad section where we apply it uh, speculatively to Donald Trump. We say there could be many, many more applications. But we are actually reaching a point in the article where it'd become more than 100 pages long. And Will and I had a little discussion. Do we want to apply it to Donald Trump? And we kind of thought that people would be angry with us if we went through 100 pages of detailed constitutional historical analysis and then didn't draw uh, at least a presumptive conclusion. So I can talk about each of these points. Well, I can talk for hours on each of these substantive, but let me try to give just a quickie summary of each again. First, that it's legally operative, it's in force. And our premise here is that constitutional provisions are defined by the meaning of the words of the text, not by, and they're not limited by the specific historical circumstances that prompted their enactment, right? The debate culminates in a text, and texts often adopt rules that go beyond the circumstances that led to their adoption. Right? I sometimes put it this way, that the, it, the Constitution is an authoritative, binding, written legal text. It is not a collection of historical circumstances or of subjective intentions of people who voted for it. Right? It ends up with a law, and that law remains in force. The fact that the Civil War is 150, 160 years in the rear view mirror does not mean that Section 3 isn't in force anymore. Its rule survives, and the rule is written not in terms of limitation to the Civil War, but in terms of participation, engagement, and insurrection or rebellion. And there seems evidence, uh, both in the legislative history, but most importantly in the text, that they meant to adopt a general neutral rule of prospective force, just like the First Amendment. Right? The First Amendment is a general rule. It's not limited to the circumstances of 1791. The Constitution's an old document, too. It continues in force. So that's basically the core of our first argument, is that the uh, setting the groundwork is that Section 3 remains legally operative. We also spend a section addressing why the 1872 and 1898 disqualification removal statutes don't extinguish Section 3. So section three is legally operative. And then, then we make, uh, we have a long section discussing why it is self-executing. And let me just look at some of my notes here. Um, our argument that it's self-executing basically is a textual argument looking at the words that you have there on the screen. No person shall be. 
And we think these are words of direct and immediate legal effect. The Constitution itself directly adopts the rule. And the language is in pari materia, exactly borrowed from uh, the other disqualification provisions of the Constitution. No person shall be president who has not obtained the age of 35 years of age, natural born citizen, resident for 14 years. No person shall be, shall hold that office. The statement of qualifications for Congress say no person shall be a senator who hasn't been at least 30 years of old, resident of the state, et cetera, et cetera. For House of Representatives, no person shall be. Uh, and it specifies the qualifications. This, we, in, just as the other restrictions on qualifications enact directly an immediate constitutional rule, so we think section three is, and the historical evidence it was intended to be a direct disqualification from office. It's a little more complicated to apply, um, but it's language of direct immediate effect. Similarly, we developed this analogy from the 13th Amendment, which prohibits slavery. And it said, you know, the 13th <clears throat> Amendment provides that neither slavery nor voluntary servitude shall exist, right? There's an enforcement section for the 13th Amendment, Congress's power to enforce the provisions by appropriate legislation. But the fact that there's an enforcement provision doesn't mean that the first section of the 13th Amendment isn't directly enforced, right? Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist. Poof, it is gone. Slavery by the enactment, the ratification of the 13th Amendment, is extinguished by the 13th Amendment itself. You don't need implementing legislation. Slavery as a legal state. It is gone. State, even if slavery as a practical right. state. It might be a legal fiction, but we're lawyers. We, we live in the world of legal fictions. The 13th Amendment directly adopts the prohibition. You don't need a statute, right? Nothing more is necessary to give it legal effect. And the rest of the 14th Amendment looks exactly the same way. The 14th Amendment, you heard reference to Section 5 as an enforcement clause of the 14th Amendment. And I do think that's an important provision that gives Congress added powers to carry into execution the prohibitions of the 14th Amendment. But the 14th Amendment's first section is the one that you're probably most familiar with as constitutional law students. The Privileges or Immunities Clause, the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause. Those stated immediate constitutional rules, Congress can enforce them, but it's not like the prohibition on state denials of equal protection have to await Congress to pass a statute. They are immediately enforced by the adoption of the 14th Amendment. So we look at this language of the Constitution, we look at the language of Section 3 and say this is language of direct and immediate effect. This is self-executing. Then we have this long section exploring what it means on the ground for a legal prohibition to be self-executing. Because here's this legal rule, and somebody has to apply it and actually bring it to bear in a certain situation. And the question is, who applies and carries out Section 3? Now, another part of being good Federalist Society conservatives is we are departmentalists, which basically means the power of enforcing and obeying the Constitution is committed to all branches of government and, not, and to the state officers, too. Everyone who swears an oath to support the Constitution is not just limited to the Supreme Court. 
So our view is that any state or federal official whose duties involve making a determination of whether somebody is disqualified from office, deciding to appoint somebody who might be disqualified, deciding to put somebody on the ballot, if you're an election official who might be disqualified, whoever has a duty and a responsibility uh, as a government official that calls for a situation where you would interpret and apply Section 3 has a duty to faithfully interpret and apply Section 3. So state secretaries of state, typically where they possess authority under state law uh, to enforce restrictions on eligibility, this would be one of the restrictions on eligibility that they have to enforce. It's part of what their duty is. Now, I was fascinated by, especially the last panel, decide, you know, I just begun to learn about all these state law variations as to exactly what authority state secretaries of state have. And Steve Simon, who, our Secretary of State, who is a former law student of mine, I think it was my second year of teaching, we had a great seminar. Of, I had a seminar of three students. Here's how you get a seminar of three students. We had an interesting topic, separation of powers, and I had 15 students and a waiting list of 15. It was capped. But then I told them they'd have a paper every week. <laughs> We dropped down to three students, and we, we held the seminar. At the time, it was called Sergeant Preston's. It was a little watering hole just off campus. Oh, some of you are old enough. You, you went to Sergeant Preston's. Steve Simon was one of my students. So Steve Simon, the Minnesota Secretary of State, takes the position that even though this is a requirement of law, he is Secretary of State, has no real authority under state law to carry out this legal requirement. I think as he, I've seen this quoted in the Star Tribune, he says, we don't have guns and badges. We are not law enforcement agency. We don't investigate. We just do what we're told. And so the Minnesota case that's going to be heard Thursday involves this Minnesota statute that authorizes basically any person, doesn't even say voter, any person to challenge the secretary's inclusion or exclusion of somebody from the ballot. And so it is one illustration of how these cases, these disputes as a practical matter, are inevitably going to end up in the courts. right? And the courts, we think, state courts, federal courts, have a duty to faithfully interpret and apply the Constitution of the United States, including Section 3 as a prohibition. Wait, I, let me just finish off. Uh, the idea that it's self-executing. We then spend about 15 pages on this Inri Griffin or Griffin's case opinion, which is this early decision of Salmon P. Chase uh, saying that Section 3 is not self-executing. And when I've given this as a talk at other Federalist societies, when, when we were just working on it in draft, I hold up Griffin's case as an example of everything you don't want to do in constitutional interpretation. And Chase's opinion says it's actually driven by the supposed inconveniences that would be created by following what the Constitution actually says. And he says, you know, if you applied this rule of disqualification, it would disqualify a lot of people. 
We have all of these Southerners, unreconstructed Southerners, who are holding offices and wielding government authority. And think of how unimaginably disruptive this would be. And I think the answer is yes. That's kind of what the purpose was and what they had in mind. And he also argues that it would be such a change from prior constitutional law that we should presume that the amendment doesn't mean to amend very much. Again, that's sort of reading your desired outcome as your first step and then using it to uh, corrupt your constitutional interpretation. So he's the guy that comes up with the section five is necessary. Congress has to pass implementing legislation. But nothing in section three's text, structure, history, or logic supports that interpretation. So we do a little tap dance all over Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase and conclude that the Griffin case, which is really the origin of where this law, uh, this, this, the interpretation of the law went awry early on, uh, we, should, we say it should be hooted down the pages of history. So, okay, right. our third argument is that the uh, section three supersedes or qualifies prior law to the extent of any inconsistency. So it's not a bill of attainder because it's a direct new constitutional rule. It's not an ex post facto law as some people objected to <coughs> at the time because you're changing it and it satisfies or supersedes the ex post facto clause. And in most respects, our analysis in section three is relatively uncontroversial and very straightforward, but it does have at least one major disturbing implication. And that is, to the extent that section three adopts a prohibition at odds with principles of freedom of speech, which controls. Freedom of speech and freedom of association, Mr. Green, are set forth in the first amendment. I have a former student from St. Thomas, a recent graduate in the front row. Good to see you. Um, first amendment is, to the extent of any inconsistency with section three, implicitly qualified by section three. Now, Will and I are both First Amendment liberals. We believe in a broad freedom of speech and expression. So this is potentially disturbing. But we think that the provisions are mostly harmonizable in that even under modern liberal free speech law, your expression in support of solicitation of a crime, attempt of a crime, conspiracy to crime, material assistance to a crime is not protected by the First Amendment. So most of the things that Section 3 would prohibit as insurrection or rebellion would not fall under the First Amendment's protection anyway, even under modern liberal interpretation of the First Amendment. Some arguably would, and there is some tension between incitement under the Supreme, you heard some mention this morning of the Supreme Court's Brandenburg decision in 1969, which adopts a very limited view of what counts as incitement to criminal activity such that you can criminally prohibit speech. Okay, I think that if you look at the history of what the, uh, of the adoption of Section 3, there are some incitements that would be constitutionally protected under Brandenburg and the First Amendment, but that would not be constitutional exceptions to when Section 3 disqualifies someone for insurrection or rebellion. 
So I think that that is a pressure point, and I think that, interestingly enough, in, in the comments that have been raised, very few people have raised much in the way of First Amendment, though I think that's the, the more vulnerable or a little bit out there uh, position. Okay, and then we'll, we'll, we'll probably spend the rest of the hour talking about this, um, how broad it is. For insurrection, we first, after doing a lot of research, come up with what we think are operational definitions, working definitions of these terms. And insurrection is basically concerted, forcible resistance to the authority of government to execute the laws in some material sense. I liked Mark Graber's add-on that it has to be for a public purpose. It's more than just a crime. It's more than just a riot. It is an attempt to defeat the government's capacity to execute the laws. So think January 6th and how that fits in. Rebellion, well, one point we wish to make is that insurrection and rebellion are largely overlapping terms, and the evidence seems to be that they wanted to adopt a comprehensive provision that would cover all forms of uh, unlawful activity that could be fairly characterized as insurrection or rebellion. Lincoln insisted that the Civil War was a rebellion, a massive rebellion. Rebellion, we think, involves typically more than insurrection. In the insurrection, you're just resisting the ability to carry out a certain law, and rebellion would also embrace abilities, to, uh, uh, an attempt to substitute the lawful government authority. Right, to displace the existing legal regime with a new legal regime in whole or in part. And one of the questions we discuss and address is whether a coup d'etat attempt is a form of rebellion. And we think legally it is. Right? You are attempting to upend the existing legal regime and substitute in its place an unlawful legal regime think not just January 6th, but the attempt to overthrow the results of a constitutional election and establish the presidential election loser in office. That's a coup d'etat. It might be a bloodless coup d'etat. It might not involve military force. It is, uh, political scientists I've seen refer to it as a self-coup, right? But it is a form of legal rebellion in that you're attempting to upend the existing legal regime and doing it by force or fraud or intimidation. So that's insurrection or rebellion. What it means to engage in insurrection, we go through a long, we spent about 50 pages on this, looking at the sorts of activities that the Civil War and Reconstruction era regarded as engaging in. And it comes down to any serious involvement in planning, participation, execution, support, encouragement, uh, counseling, abetting, a very broad aiding and abetting type of understanding of what it means to uh, constitute engaging in insurrection. So we look at 1860s era dictionaries and legal dictionaries. 
we look at prior background historical assumptions of things that were characterized as insurrections or rebellions and that were well established as a matter of history and un legal understanding at the time. Uh, Shays' Rebellion, Fry's Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, John Brown's raid into West Virginia, well, Virginia at the time, uh, was a form of rebellion and insurrection. We look to, uh, I'm a Lincoln lover, I, I, we look at Lincoln's usage of the terms insurrection and rebellion and the breadth of what was regarded as participation in the Civil War as rebellion. Congress, in, during the Civil War, passed some statutes, uh, heard allusion to the Second Confiscation Act, which was a, a series of legal prohibitions that removed property and imposed penalties and office disqualification on people who were engaged in rebellion, and it details a lot of the sorts of things that would constitute engaging in rebellion. About the same time, 1862, stop me if I'm boring you. Okay, because I can talk about 1862 until you're blue in the face. Well, at least for 17 more minutes. Okay. Oh, I better make it. Uh, Congress passes uh, what was called the Ironclad Oath, which said you could not serve in a federal office, sort of a proto section three, if you had done any of these activities and you had to swear that you never did them. There's a Supreme Court case in 1863 called the Prize Cases, which upheld Lincoln's blockade of the southern ports, and it describes insurrection or rebellion. All of these materials would have been part of the common discourse and legal culture at the time, and the terms insurrection, rebellion, engaging in, aid or comfort were ubiquitous in federal law by the time they adopt the uh, se Section 3 of the uh, 14th Amendment. We think that's what it means. That's what it means, and we canvass the evidence, and then we, we, we draw the conclusion that if the evidence so far in the public record, and we look at what the January 6th Commission concluded, what various public sources show so far, it shows that Trump, and likely many others, engaged in what legally constitutes insurrection or rebellion in a number of ways. First of all, there's specifically the insurrection of January 6th, the assault on the Capitol and Trump's degree of participation in that. But more broadly, there's the whole effort to get to displace the lawful state election returns, to seize voting machines, to find another 10,000 or 11,000 votes to overturn it. There's the uh, uh, bogus elector, the alternative elector scheme. There are a variety of, it's more than just speech, there are a variety of overt actions that constitute attempts by fraud or by force to overthrow an election, constitutional election. We think unless Trump has something different and wishes to disprove this with evidence, that the conclusion is that it fits the constitutional standard and that he's constitutionally disqualified and that any official whose duties call for enforcing the law in respect to qualifications would have a duty to enforce and carry out that law. So, so that's, the that's the article. That's 126 pages in 15 minutes. You should still all read it.
Um, so I want to make sure we have at least a few minutes for questions from the audience. But before we do that, I want to talk about or invite you to comment on some of these sort of objections that have been raised. And obviously, there's again, it's a, it's a, it's a, a target-rich environment. This area of the law, there's a lot to say. But I want to focus on a couple of them. So one concern might be, and this is especially with regard to your last point about how broadly people understood at the time words like insurrection in particular or rebellion, that you're going to sweep in a huge amount of conduct here, right? So a huge amount of a huge amount of conduct, um, and that you're going to empower. Um, because of how broad this idea of insurrection is, a lot of these sorts of, of lawsuits, right? You know, earlier today, I think it was Professor Blackman mentioned that Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene has accused uh, the, our representative, at least the one from Minneapolis, uh, Representative o uh, Ilhan Omar, of engaging in, in insurrection. Um, um, not sure exactly what the factual predicate for that claim is, um, but you know, to take a, pick something that's quite close to home, right? Um, after the murder of George Floyd, there were many protests. There were also some riots. Some of those riots went after um, uh, federal buildings, federal courthouses. Um, could those be interpreted as insurrections? Um, and if so, are you going to get into a situation where actually not an insubstantial number of people at the federal and maybe especially at the state level are going to be you know, disqualified because they've engaged in things that one side or the other thinks of as insurrection or even, or even encouraged? Right. And there are a lot of issues there. Um, first, Section 3 is limited in the disqualification it imposes to former officers or present officers of the United States government or state governments you know, who fit the descriptions. So it's not every rioter who is subject to permanent disqualification. Um, but I think as a matter of principle, if an elected official conspired with, encouraged, and engaged in activity that actually fit the definition of insurrection or rebellion and attempt to overthrow the government or prevent uh, execution of the laws, um, that that arguably would fit. And there, you know, there are many circumstances beyond just the January 6th uh, A lot of this would be a, a question of facts. What do the facts show? I, I had the same reaction when Professor Blackman was saying uh, uh, that my Congress representative uh, should be guilty of insurrection. I, I'm no fan of hers. And she said some crazy things. But in any of these situations, I'd want to know, what did she do that constitutes actually engaging in insurrection or rebellion? And I, one of the criticisms that's been raised is, um, by my good friend Michael McConnell, who's a professor now at Stanford Law School, is that you put this weapon in the wrong hands or partisan hands and it could be misused. And I think that's right, right? Any power or constitutional provision could be misused if misapplied. But the remedy for that isn't to throw out the constitutional provision, it's to throw out the abuse and check the abuse. And I think there's a, a danger in saying we should not give effect to something the Constitution actually provides. Because it, would, it could be misused by others. Check the misuse. Don't throw the Constitution out uh, in, entirely. So I have one more question for you, but I'd like to, to invite folks, uh, if they have questions, as I'm sure many do, to, to line up um, behind the microphone. Um, so the, the last question I wanted to ask you is whether or not Section 3 is a bulwark of democracy, a threat to democracy, or both. It's like Schrodinger's okay. democracy provision. Um, in, in, in disenfranchising, potentially, tens and tens of millions of people, 
uh, in pursuit of a more durable democracy. Is there a tension there? Is there a paradox there? What, what do you think about that line um, of objections? I, yeah, I think this is a common objection, and I hear it, see a lot in the popular press, you know, that, this, that to enforce Section 3 would be anti-democratic. It would be uh, dis impairing the right and the freedom of people to vote. And I actually have some sympathy to that. You know, we are a democracy, and the right to vote is hugely valuable. But the Constitution limits the right to vote in a number of ways through its disqualification provisions, right? I can't vote for my favorite recent president, George W. Bush, again, because he's constitutionally disqualified. He's served two terms. I can't vote for Barack Obama. I can't vote for Bill Clinton. I can't vote for Arnold Schwarzenegger because he was born in Austria to Austrian parents. He is constitutionally disqualified. Does that impair my right to vote? Does that disenfranchise me? Is that un-American? I think you'd answer no because those are restrictions set forth in the Constitution. So is Section 3. And I've seen the argument also raised in some of the popular discussion against it is that uh, I think it is the first questioner at the microphone, I read his thing, you know, that actually you can think of something like Section 3 and some of these other qualifications requirements as democracy protective provisions. And you shouldn't understand them as a threat to democracy, but as protections for responsible representative Republican government. Professor Sullivan. Yeah. I was actually going to ask a question about a different topic and that it's in analyzing this, are you and Will in your excellent article, is your assumption that these provisions should be interpreted as understood by sort of ordinary readers at the time or by sort of uh, legal professionals or the like, because this is one of those places where I think it makes a difference. Uh, I've set out that distinction not in the article you mentioned, in a different article, that if you interpret it as ordinary readers would interpret this stuff, almost all of the objections to your argument fall away, because mm. almost all of them are hyper-technical arguments that only lawyers would think of, like, to my mind, the relatively nonsensical notion that the president is not included as an officer of the United States, and therefore you have this uh, ridiculous situation where a former president can engage in insurrection and not be disqualified, but, but a low-level bureaucrat would be. That's the kind of argument only a hyper-technical lawyer could accept, and with one or two exceptions, like I think the issue about what counts as an insurrection or whether Trump sufficiently aided the insurrection, that is not in that boat, but most of the other objections to your thesis are all of that same type. They're sort of hyper-technical points that only lawyers are likely to think about or be interested in. Uh, so is your approach, therefore, that it's the ordinary meaning as understood by ordinary readers, or uh, is it sort of legal sophisticates or some combination of the two? There are hybrid theories that combine the two because of, of, of all the constitutional debates that I've seen recently uh, that, are, that are of significant, this may be the one where this issue has the greatest significance. I can still make hyper-technical arguments that the hyper-technical arguments on the other side are wrong, uh, but if counterintuitive hyper-technical arguments are just rejected out of hand as under the ordinary reader approach they would be, uh, then your task uh, becomes a lot easier, or at least I think. That's a fascinating question. This might be a little bit too inside baseball, legal, academic, but that, that's what we are. That's what we do here. <clears throat> my version, my understanding of originalism is you're trying to capture the objective meaning the words would have had to the people who adopted it. 
right? I don't, th I think you're basically looking to a reasonable person standard, somebody who is reasonably informed, but you're not looking to the hyper-technical lawyer who, who's adopting some, if a constitutional term when adopted, at the time it's enacted, was understood to be a legal term of art, and if people generally understood that, and that's part of the legal milieu at the time, I think you give effect to that. Now, your example is a wonderful one. We, I was looking as I was listening to the other panels, we spend about seven or eight pages on this question of whether the president is an officer of the United States. And one of the debates we had between Will and I at the time was like, how seriously do we want to treat this argument? Because you know, when push comes to shove, a common sense reading the text as a whole in context of reading would say that, that that's just ludicrous. The president is not an officer of the United States. So we spend a somewhat tedious amount of time describing how the president holds an office. He's the office of the president. Upon He swears an oath before assuming the office, 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 office. <laughs> Is, is the presidency somehow an officerless office so that the president is, holds an office but is not an officer? You know, it, there's a point when even lawyers should be subject to the uh, idea of absurdity. And we do set forth an interpretive principle that you should not read provisions of the Constitution as if the Constitution is a secret legal code, right? A secret code that can only be understood by a select intelligentsia who, who've been informed of the secret code decoder rings and stuff like that. And so we resist any sort of hyper-technical interpretation that builds interpretive mountains out of linguistic molehills. Uh, it is a principle in statutory interpretation. I think the aphorism it might be from Justice Scalia is, con we presume Congress did not hide elephants in mouse holes. Right? And the idea that the president is excluded from disqualification because he's somehow not an officer of the United States or officer under the United States, it, it strikes us as absurd. I think I see the gentleman in the audience who asked one of the questions at the end of the last panel. It's like, what would be the consequences of adopting this? Was that your question? No. Um, the, the, if one adopted the view that the president is not an officer of the United States, the president could serve in Congress at the same time that he's president. The president could be a elector. For himself, the president, uh, if he's impeached and removed, could not be disqualified from being president again because he's not an officer. He's not. He can't be excluded. So we think the that that argument, with all due respect, make, makes no sense. My my friend in law school roommate Akhil Amar has this great podcast, and uh, uh, he, he's he's like a wild man. He, he's great. But he has a quotation at one point where he's discussing this argument, and he says, let me be perfectly clear about this. This argument is stupid, right? <laughs> it, 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 may, it makes no logical sense. But I think in, in general, the impulse to be looking for the meaning of the words as informed by context and historical background, it is the right impulse. You just can't go haywire with it. 
So we have, uh, as far as I can tell, two minutes and uh, three questions. So here's what I'd like to do, actually. Um, uh, you, well, you, the, the, the other two gentlemen should feel free if, if they'd like to ask their questions. But I think we can ask all the questions, uh, and then we can finish with your okay. sort of closing thoughts. Oh, we scared you away. Come on, Richard. Get <laughs> I don't, back in line. I don't think anyone scares Richard Painter away. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'll ask my question really quickly then. Um, I, we heard a little bit about this in the last panel, but I'm curious on your perspective on what the text and the history tells us about who should be the finder of fact here. Um, we've, you know, we've got a Minnesota Supreme Court petition here, but it's not really a trial court. They're not used to doing these kind of intense fact-finding uh, missions. And, um, you know, we also heard about what the standard should be, whether it should be uh, beyond a reasonable doubt in terms of a criminal context or something less than that. Um, so, you know, or should we be deferring to Congress? Should this be a congressional mission to do some fact-finding so that it's binding across the country? Just curious if you could talk a little bit more about what the fact-finding process um, should be as it relates to the text and the history of the... Um, okay, so we have, uh, we have who should be the finder of fact? Okay. Rich, why don't you ask your question as well? Very much connected to that. If uh, the most peaceful way and orderly way to resolve this is for the finders of fact to be the officials of the Republican parties throughout the state and throughout the country, um, isn't it better to carry this debate forth to the public and perhaps to uh, be more vocal in public forum as opposed to just academic so that the public can be involved and make the decision as opposed to having this resolved in the course of the worst case scenarios resolved on January 6th of 2025, which seems to me to be utter chaos that was suggested in the last panel. Uh, second, why do we have this provision? Was it really just to punish the um, insurrectionists of 1861, or is this forward-looking, thinking that insurrectionists are dangerous to a democracy? Uh, you've looked at the, at the uh, legislative history, but one question I've always asked is what would have happened in world history if the Weimar Republic had copied this provision and put it in the Weimar Constitution? Uh, I believe it would have disqualified uh, the appointment of uh, Mr. Hitler as the uh, Chancellor of Germany in 1933 because he had been convicted of insurrection. It seems to me this is a vitally important provision for the preservation of a democracy. Let me try to draw together those seven different questions and give the question of who applies this standard to concrete facts on the ground is an interesting question. And I think a variety of actors do in a variety of circumstances. Congress, in judging whether a member of Congress is disqualified under its provisions to judge elections and returns and to expel a member, would have the authority to make the factual determination as to those members of Congress in that circumstance. State election officials who have the duty to apply and enforce state election law, including disqualification of candidates, would have the authority to interpret and apply in accordance with whatever procedures they otherwise have. Right? If they have administrative hearings, if they have judicial hearings, uh, they should do with respect to Section 3 what they would do with respect to any other disqualification provision. I strongly believe that these questions inevitably uh, give rise to situations that can become justiciable controversies. They present core issues of constitutional law, and they should be resolved by courts. I agree. I think it was with what Ned said that if this, if there is a decision of one or more state supreme courts holding that Trump is legally disqualified, that will go up to the Supreme Court very likely. And the Supreme Court, 
will decide that issue and that a decision will likely has dispositive effect as to the entire issue throughout the whole country. I disagree, Ned, that the that, that time is all that short. Some of the Supreme Court's most important landmark decisions have come in a huge rush of time. Youngstown Sheeton II versus Sawyer was like three weeks from Truman's seizure of the steel mills to Supreme Court decision, and it generated some of the most impressive Supreme Court uh, opinions on separation of powers and constitutional authority there were. Um, Bush versus Gore, rapid fast. Nixon tapes case, on a fast track. I think this, I am not worried that the Supreme Court couldn't decide this in a matter of few weeks if necessary. Um, I think the, that it would be chaotic if this went to January 6, 2025. In our article, we say that we do not think that Congress has the constitutional authority to not count votes. Right? We don't think that is within their constitutional authority. We think that the power, that the duty of opening up the election certificates and counting the votes is a ministerial duty, and Congress and the Vice President have no authority to throw out uh, lawfully cast votes for a disqualified candidate. Now, that is troubling because we think that uh, the 20th Amendment, as was mentioned earlier, actually provides that a disqualified candidate for president cannot become president. So uh, there are a variety of ways this could be enforced. As to Richard's last question, wait, don't you think that this is an important constitutional provision? Yes, this is a hugely important constitutional provision. And like any other hugely consequential uh, provision of the Constitution, we shouldn't run from it. We should actually, you know, the courts should not duck this issue. They should squarely decide what the meaning of Section 3 is and follow the logic of it where it leads to the appropriate legal conclusion. Please join me in thanking Professor Paulson. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law Podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.